Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Hello, Deal Quest community. This is Corey Kupfer, and this is a solo cast of the Deal Quest podcast this week. And the topic I want to talk about is something that just interestingly, uh, I've had some inquiries on over the last couple of weeks, and it's on roll ups. You know, basically, the concept of somebody coming into a particular space and industry and buying up a lot of companies for the purposes of consolidating them. You know, I've been involved over the years in roll-ups of various types uh, from helping to, to design uh, some aggregator platforms um, in various spaces to representing companies who uh, were acquired by aggregators. And there's some interesting, you know, times. I mean, back in the 80s, for example, you know, they, they were very popular and then that became a big negative connotation on the roll-up game uh, because so many of the firms that went into roll-ups, I mean, there were some that were very, very successful. But um, a number of the firms that were roll-ups back then ended up uh, not panning out. Um, and so for a while, the concept was uh, you know, somewhat maligned, uh, actually, although roll-ups continued in various industries and some were very successful. And you know, they've, they've sort of you know, come back I and mean, they've never really left. Uh, but you know, as deals have gotten hotter again, I mean, I've just uh, been posting lately around how this is probably the hottest deal market I've seen since the 80s. You know, roll-ups have... Um, certainly increased along with just the deal flow. And uh, also the fact that you know, we've talked about on this uh, podcast, you know, over not only the recently, but over the last couple of years, how much money there is in space, which also helps facilitate the roll-up, you know, game, the aggregated game. So let's talk about why uh, people do roll-ups and the ones that work and don't work. And um, whether it's from the roll-up side or, you know, from the uh, seller side, if you're approached by, a, a roll up to buy your company. Uh, you know, is it a good deal? Is it not a good deal? Should you do it, et cetera? Let's look at the business model, the concept of a roll up. Like, why do folks come in and do roll ups? Well, there's a number of reasons. One, there's at a very basic level the concept of how multiples go up as companies get bigger, right? So there are some plays that say, hey, you know, we're going to go out, we're going to buy a bunch of companies in an industry, we're going to buy them at X multiple. Right, exhibit a multiple, this kind of cash flow analysis, multiple revenue, whatever, whatever you want to look at as the measure. And because we're going to put all these companies together, just solely based upon the size increase, we're going to be able to get a higher multiple. And that's generally true in most industries. Um, the bigger you are, the higher multiple you get. And of course, the base on which that multiple is applied is higher as well. So if you've got a you know a bunch of companies out there that have a million dollars in revenue. And, you know, in theory, you, you aggregate 10 or 15 of those, and now you have 10 or $15 million in revenue. 
you know, or it could be 10 times that, right? You know, you, you, you're rolling up $10 million companies and you buy 10 or 15 of those and you get 100, 150 million or even into the billions, depending upon what size you're talking about. But in any case, at some point, you know, you're going to hit that next step up where you're multiple, you know, you know, let's say, and I'm making this up, it's obviously different by industry, whatever, but, you know, let's say you're a million dollar company, $10 million, whatever it is, is, you know, is, is trading at a 5X EBITDA multiple, well, you know, maybe you, you can get, you know, an eight or nine or a 10 even, you know, as, as you grow. So there's just the multiple arbitrage in terms of the size of the company. And, um, you know, that's often what people are depending upon. And frankly, um, if it's that alone, uh, you know, I think there's reasons to look at the roll up and say, hey, what else is being brought to the table? Because when you do that, a lot of times it's market dependent, right? A lot of times these roll ups are coming in at a time where multiples are going up. So the arbitrage is really a good play, but then, you know, the market could, could drop and, uh, and that's happened. Sometimes it happened back in the 80s and some of these roll-ups got caught up where they could not exit at the higher multiples. So that's a risk. But what else do they bring to the table? So the next natural easy thing that any kind of roll-up will talk about, and it's true, you know, and it's often something that's talked about with any kind of merger acquisition deal, is the, the economies of scale, is the synergies, is the fact that you can uh, reduce uh, overall costs, especially with back and middle office and admin stuff and logistics, you know, you could potentially um, reduce personnel, you can combine systems, you can create efficiencies of scale. And certainly if you're, you know, and that's true in any deal, but certainly if you're a roll up and you've done it successfully, then you've uh, also built, you know, you're not just the best ones and not just taking a bunch of companies all, you know, let's say all over the country and just owning them and keeping their expense structures in, in, in place, the management structures in space in place, but they are also creating some economies of scale. They're creating some centralized systems, accounting, uh, you know, tech stack, back office, things like that, that create efficiencies and create cost savings and make create efficiencies uh, that allow a more consistent delivery of service or products or, uh, you know, more speed to market, things like that. So, so now what you're doing is, right, you've got the multiple bump up because of size, but now you've also been able to make things more efficient, which makes companies more profitable. And then if you're more profitable, your EBITDA is higher. And therefore, that higher multiple is, is applied based upon a higher uh, profit. So, for example, if these million dollar, $10 million companies are, you know, run at 20% uh, profit margins, and you can get the whole group running at a 30% profit margin because you've created some economies of scale and some efficiencies and systems and centralized management, well, now you've got 10% more profit. And whatever multiple you're getting, you know, in my example, we've bumped up from a five to an eight or a nine. You're not only getting that eight or nine on the on the on the previous EBITDA number, but you're getting that extra 10% profit, which raises the EBITDA that that multiple is applied on. So you get um, additional valuation there. So let's go beyond that, right? Let, let's talk about where I have seen you know these rollups work better than others. And that is where some of those roll-ups are bringing even more to the table. Now, what does that mean? They may be bringing some more professional management. So there's like a difference between just the economies of scale and creating some back and middle office, and then maybe taking an industry where there is less professional management, where it's more scattered, where it's more mom and pop. And when I say mom and pop, I'm not necessarily talking about, you know, like the tiny, uh, you know, store on the corner, 
because usually those aren't ripe for a roll up or, uh, you know, uh, but, you know, it's an industry. I'll give you an example. Back uh, in the 90s, probably, I did, I was involved with a roll up in the ophthalmology industry. And uh, this is before there were big ophthalmology chains, uh, you know, doing, and, and it was, it was ophthalmology and optometrist, right? So a lot of, a lot of these were where they were, the eye doctors, but also many of them had, they would sell some glasses, right? As part of their practice. Well, um, this roll-up came in, created some efficiencies of scale in terms of billing and systems and that kind of stuff for the, uh, for the ophthalmologist, but also had a lot of expertise more on the product side, right? And, you know, there's obviously ophthalmologists, you know, people who meet with patients and do eye exams and things like that. You know, there's only there's limited scalability of that because that takes people's time. Yeah, I mean, you could do what like I do as a lawyer, right, which is hire other lawyers and pay them X and bill them out at X, X times. But obviously in a product business where, you know, you can sell glasses and contact lenses and things like that, there's more scalability. And that's where this, um, this one of the things this roll-up brought was not only the product and the distribution systems and whatever, but also um, bringing in systems and whatever to be able to have the ophthalmologist, you know, sell patients on not going somewhere else to get their glasses, but actually getting their prescription, you know, their diagnosis, their prescription, et cetera. And then also buying the glasses and uh, contact lenses from the ophthalmology practices themselves, right? And they took what was especially back then in the early nineties, if I'm remembering the time frame correctly, of a very, very fragmented, you know, and there's still some fragmentation there, but now you see bigger change and, and things like that that you didn't have. It was a very fragmented industry that had, you know, decent profit margins already. Where they saw that opportunity to not only have the multiple bump by size, not only have the economies of scale in terms of back in middle office and, you know, technology and systems, you know, for, for, for booking appointments and for things like that. And, and also, you know, there's also knowledge on, on pricing and things like that, but also was able to uh, create significantly more product sales uh, in terms of the glasses and contact lenses for these various firms. So that's just an example of where there's something else that was brought to the table that increased revenue profits significantly on a per unit basis beyond just the aggregation for size and for economies of scale and cost savings. Now, what is the key from the roll-up side? Most of these roll-ups, I mean, listen, in theory, you could have a roll-up that buys a bunch of places and just going to create those economies of scale to create more cash flow, and then just sit and own the businesses forever, and it's a cash flow play. I'm not saying that doesn't exist, but the far majority of roll-ups are really set up to exit at some point, and they may be set up to exit through IPO, you know, public offering, or through um, acquisition, for example, um, if there, especially if there is a major player or players in the space already, you might have, for example, a regional roll-up that is looking to sell to one of the national chains, right? They're going to do a roll-up in the geographic area where they know the, the space and the market, et cetera, create enough economies of scale, because maybe that's too distributed, too small for the big guys to go after. But once it's rolled up and consolidated to some extent, it becomes attractive to the big boys. Or you might have a situation where there's no national major player, but private equity and things like that might, you know, get involved to continue that roll up. And, and by the way, some of these roll ups are started by private equity in the first place. And then, you know, eventually they'll sell out to somebody else or, or go or go publicly off. Now, some of the reasons why things fail from the roll up side, from the aggregator side, is like I said earlier, there could be a market drop, so the, the the multiple arbitrage that they're betting on does not come to fruition. 
And now, and they have capital that's deployed and they may, you know, if they're private equity capital, for example, you know, they're looking for a three, five, seven year, you know, uh, out and returns. And now the market's down and they can't really exit. Um, so that can become a problem. The ability to professionally manage and aggregate, reduce, reduce costs and create systems. If they fail at that, that can, you know, that can be a problem. You know, cultural fit, obviously, you know, one of the things that happens in these roll-ups often is that there is, is some sort of centralized management and the individual owners of, the, of these firms lose control. Now, for some, in some industries, that's fine. I mean, you know, we did one, um, uh, this was from the sell side, I was going to say a few years ago, it's probably five, six years ago now, in the backup industry where one of our clients is an online, you know, computer backup uh, provider and some related services. And there was a roll-up in that industry who was buying and and the deal was structured where, you know, our client sold and was it was out pretty quickly and got paid pretty quickly. Um, so, you know, they, they the, the seller didn't take much, you know, much risk there. Uh, and and because it was tech based, you know, it was it was easier to uh, to transfer. Um, whereas, for example, in my ophthalmology practice, you know, you need people, you need doctors, right? You need high doctors who are going to going to do that. And if if they're not happy with the with the cultural fit, with the you know the level of because many of them are going to stay on, right, and continue to practice. And now you know they're they've gone from being entrepreneurs to being employees. Maybe they have, and you know, now we're starting to get into the structure a little bit. You know, maybe as part of that comp, they've gotten in addition to cash uh, some equity in the roll-up, and that's often part of the structure. I'll talk about that a little more in a second. So that they, they're, you know, maybe they're initially excited about that, and maybe the roll-up's not going as well. The market has changed, and the value of that equity is is less exciting. Or maybe they're, um, you know, they've lost management control, and they realize they don't like not being able to make decisions. You know, all of these things come up. From the point of view of a seller, the decision of whether to sell to a roll-up, to an aggregated firm versus not selling at all or versus selling or merging with a, a you know an individual buyer, you know, is always an interesting one. I will tell you that it's very often that roll-ups are paying higher numbers because let's say, for example, in a for a buyer, um, you know, so you're in a particular industry and a, a buyer value. Uh, as many, you know, I do a lot of financial services. So let's use, for example, an investment advisory firm. Well, let's say another investment advisory firm, you know, would pay, and again, I'm just making up numbers, you know, let's say would pay a, a six times EBITDA multiple, you know, for your firm, because, you know, that's that's what it's worth to them. And they're looking at integrating into their model. And it's only going to be so much uh, savings and that kind of stuff. The aggregate may say, well, I can pay an eight instead of a six or a nine instead of a six. Because I know when I aggregate, I'm going to exit at 12 or 14 because of all the things we, we previously talked about, the economies of scale, uh, the, the size, you know, the, the additional revenue and profit maybe they can generate through their expertise, the better management, et cetera. So the, I've seen many, many scenarios where uh, I've represented sellers who have gotten what for them is above market multiples and often quicker and more favorable payment terms. I mean, we've done deals recently where, uh, you know, people have been fully paid out actually over the last number of years, uh, in, you know, within a year or two, you know, when it was 10 months. And you're unlikely to get those terms from an individual buyer. You know, usually there's going to be more clawbacks. There's going to be more time to pay, you know, a third or half or whatever the purchase price over a number of years, just because there's uh, less access to capital or there's more risk aversion to want to make sure that there are no problems and, you know, and, and they need more time for adjustments to purchase price, 
because the aggregators are, the roll-ups are often willing to take more, more risk um, because again, their bet is that if they acquire quickly and aggregate up, they're going to get these higher multiples. So that cushions the downside risk uh, and speed really makes more of a difference because when you're rolling up, you want to roll up quickly because there may be other roll-ups in the space competing, you know, or if they see your success, they may come into the space, which will create more competition, which will drive up prices. So a lot of roll-ups are looking to be quick to market and do a lot of deals quickly. And they're often, you know, well-funded enough to do that, that, uh, and, and again, they're betting on that multiple arbitrage. So they'll pay what is currently for your firm above an above market price. So if you are looking to exit, and especially if you're somebody who's, you know, getting out of the business, maybe you'll obviously stay on for some sort of consulting period or, you know, even maybe a year, you know, or so in terms of employment. But again, so with some of these aggregators, they have management in place depending on the industry and you may not even need to do that. Whereas, you know, an individual deal likely you would, um, you know, you may get, be able to get uh, higher multiples. Um, and take more money off the table. And, you know, for many people, that's important. And especially if they think the clients will be integrated and well-served. Now, which which leads to the reason why some people don't like the aggregated deals because they sometimes have concerns about whether their customers and clients, depending upon what kind of business they're in, will get the same kind of service, you know, where it won't be as customized, where it will be more cookie-cutter, where... You know, maybe they're used to that personal touch and, and, and will they get it? And that concern about having a client so customers being taken care of sometimes is an impediment in those situations. Also, the fact that they are going to have little to no, you know, say in, in management and control could be an impediment to somebody doing an aggregated deal. But, you know, it's, listen, it's industry by industry, it's circumstance by circumstance, company by company, but certainly there's usually more money to be, uh, be able to be taken, as I said earlier, potentially in some of the models to get a piece of equity in the, in the aggregator, at the aggregator level. So if they are successful, you get sort of the second bite, you know, of the, of the Apple. And I've had clients who've done that, you know, they sold their company for a nice multiple. They've taken, let's say 90% of it or 95% of it in cash or 80 or whatever the number is, and, and some percentage of it, they get an equity in the aggregator company and the aggregator company eventually sells or goes public or has, you know, whatever kind of exit they have. And so they, you know, the seller, uh, my client in some of these cases gets paid twice, right? They get paid a chunk of money in cash up front, and then they get this back end piece when the aggregator exits at that much higher multiple um, because they've, you know, they've gotten, they've traded equity at their multiple but then um, the, the equity of the aggregator is going to sell at a higher multiple. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. Where are we seeing aggregation right now? I mean, certainly again, in financial services, there's a lot of it going on. There's, there's many aggregators roll-ups in that space, um, certainly in some of, the, some of the tech spaces. I know I've talked recently with some folks who are thinking about, you know, or looking at some industries, I won't say what they are out of respect for um, them identifying these opportunities and not creating competition for them, but, you know, where, they, where they've become familiar with an industry and they, 
and they see that it's fragmented and, you know, and that's where there's the opportunity, right? If you're in a particular industry and, and, and it's tough, frankly, you know, unless you're a private equity firm that has, that can hire a great management and has a huge amount of money. If you are more of an entrepreneur and operator, odds are any kind of roll-up opportunity for you to be an aggregator as opposed to being the seller is much more likely to be in your industry just because that's what you know. You see the inefficiencies, you see the opportunity there, you, you know the players. I'm not saying you can't just identify an industry that you don't have experience in because you're a good entrepreneur or uh, manager and because you can build the right team, hire some people who know the industry that is not doable. You know, but more often I see either private equity money coming in because they've identified a space and hiring the right people, or uh, if it's more the entrepreneurs, they're doing it in the industry they know and often in the business that they're in. And they see this opportunity because they figured out a way to do it better uh, in their own company, right? And they could say, oh, wow, I can bring this. this you know, there's so many of my competitors out there who are less efficient, who are less profitable, who don't have the system we built, um, who deliver a service model differently than we do and we, we're crushing them. Well, maybe it's better to, you know, and especially if you do have a reputation of being very successful, then when you approach your competitors, right? No, listen, there's going to be a number of them that are not going to want to talk to you. They're going to be scared off. They're going to not want to reveal any of their insight, you know, their information because they, they think you can use it to your advantage. But it's also going to be a percentage of them that's a, that are going to say, hey, you know, these folks have figured something out, right? They're crushing us competitively. Well, instead of fighting them, why don't we join them, right? So, and, you know, what, what, what is most ripe is, as we said, is, is industries that are more fragmented, industries that are less efficient, Industries maybe where there's technology or other uh, systems that can be put into place to make things much, much more efficient. Industries where there's a gap between the best and, and the rest. And, um, you know, there, there could be significant opportunities out there in those industries to, to aggregate. And, you know, we've, again, we've designed some of those in various industries. And what we do when we design them is that we create, uh, you know, some of you may uh I have a 10 tip video series on my website on cupforlaw.com. It's actually directed to RA firms in terms of M&A tuckins and advisor onboarding deals. But the truth is the principles apply to any industry. And I've been thinking about, I probably should do one that's more general. But, you know, one of the things we talk about is, is and this is just not necessarily specifically for roll-ups, but for any deal, one of the things we talk about there is as a buyer, you, you know, you're going to start out by um, identifying your why and then who you're targeting and what the value proposition is. So some of the things we talked about in terms of why aggregators do what they do, you know, will give you a hint as to what, you know, what the, what their why is, right? They want to grow, they want to exit the value proposition that they're offering to folks, you know, either the cash, the equity, the ability to grow, the uh, later exit, the higher multiples, that kind of stuff. And then, you know, at least to building a model and then creating your deal structure under the model. Well, certainly when you're an aggregator, it's even more important. I, I preach this for everybody. What's even more important to build that model because you're going to have a, then create a deal structure under that model. And that's the way you're going to do deals, right? You do not want to, you know, have many variations. And you can have a couple of variations in there, but basically you're going to do deals a certain way and you're going to bring people into a system. And you can aggregate them in, you know, that way. And so that's some of the work that we do, you know, with helping folks think through these whiteboarding sessions and design the aggregator model, the roll-up model. And then, and then we create the, the, the template set of documents 
that they do. And then the deals become easier, right? And I'm not saying there's not some negotiation. Obviously, you got to do due diligence on every deal, but you're not redrafting, repreparing a set of deal documents every time. You're just customizing them to the particular deal because you have the docs, the templates, the way that you do it under your model. Um, and, you know, and, the, and by the way, that raises a, um, a negative potentially for this on the sell side, because if you're selling to aggregators, I mean, they will tell you the documents are standard, no change can be made. That's often not the case. There's usually some flexibility at some negotiation you can make. And we've done that, certainly representing sellers in terms of getting changes to the documents, maybe getting some more legal protections. But it is more limited than if you're negotiating often a deal with a one-off buyer, right? Because they don't want to, you know, the smart aggregator is not going to vary all that much from their from their model. Um, so that could create some less flexibility in negotiation on the sell side. And that's something to keep in account too. So listen, like any other uh, model, like any other business, uh, there have been some very successful roll-ups. There's been failures. You have to do your due diligence if you're on the sell side as to, um, you know, what the model is, what you're gonna, whether you're going to be happy with that model. You obviously want to do due diligence on the management. Can they pull off the roll-up? You know, what are the odds? You want to look at where the market is, although obviously that's hard to predict. But there is, you know, market risk. So you want to evaluate that um, because, again, the whole thing is betting upon the multiples staying strong and increasing multiples. And, um, you know, and you want to figure out whether, you know, have they done many deals before? Are you their 15th deal or their 80th deal? Or are you their first deal or the second deal? I will tell you, if you're their first deal or second deal, you have more leverage to negotiate. Um, better terms and to help actually shape, um, you know, their their documents. So I've been on that side where I know my client has leverage because it's their first deal and we'll be able to negotiate much more aggressively on the deal terms and on the legal terms than we would if they're with the, you know, 28th deal, right? So, you know, worth looking into, um, worth considering if you're a seller, again, because of the higher, higher multiples you may get and the other benefits, the uh, potential second bite at the Apple upside down line, if the model is to give you some equity as part of the deal. As somebody who might be thinking about whether they should become a roll-up, obviously, you know, if you see those inefficiencies, you see those ways you can do it better, you've created systems that work, that's an opportunity. Keep in mind, one last thing I'll say, if you're on that side of the game, is that when you become a roll-up, you as the entrepreneur, you as the CEO, you as the management team are going to be playing a different role now, right? You're going to be doing a lot less of running the operations of whatever business that you have in that particular industry, but you are instead now going to be doing a lot of recruiting, right? A lot of selling, a lot of deal making to bring others in, you know, while you have ops people doing that, right? We talk generally about how it takes time and energy and focus to get a deal done while you're operating a business as an entrepreneur or executive Certainly, if you become a roll-up, you, your management team, and or a specific newly hired team that you bring in to do that, who has experience with that, you're going to need people to focus on that. And your job as the CEO or executive overseeing that's going to change, you know, uh, materially. So you want to take that to account as well. Um, so yeah, uh, you know, folks, check it out. Think about it. Uh, rolling up is an opportunity. Selling to a roll-up is a potential opportunity. There are upsides and downsides. I've just uh, seen an uptick in uh, inquiries about this. Uh, I've spoken to a couple of people recently about who are looking potentially to roll up in the industry. And again, we designed a number of those uh, recently in financial services and tech, especially. Um, just that's been the recent stuff. But you know, like I said, I've done we've done a bunch of industries, ophthalmology. You know, uh, as I mentioned back um, in the '90s, and everything in between. 
Yeah, interesting opportunity, something to think about, especially when capital is available, because that's key. The roll-ups take funding and capital is available now. So think about it from that point of view, um, get a lot of inquiries on it. Doesn't I don't know whether that'll mean that uh, there'll be a lot more roll-up deals coming coming our way. Uh, we'll see. We've had some uh, and, and you know, some people kicking the tires. So have a great week, folks. Next week, back with a uh, guest interview. And then uh, as always, we will um, be back in a few weeks with a, another solo cast. Thank you, DealQuest community. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.